So, of course, some heroes are easier to identify than others, aren't they? So I thought I would do a little bit of a hero quiz for you this morning and see how many heroes are going to come up on the screen here that you can get. To warn you, it starts off easy and then gets a little bit harder. So can we put the first one up? So kids, tell me which hero is this? Easy one, Spider-Man. So you've got him. Next one, can you get who this is? Who's this? This is Hawkeye from the Avengers, looking good in his vest top there. Okay, next up. Anybody know who this one is? This is Ant-Man. Some of the adults are very interested in this. Movie out at the moment. Is the movie any good, Pete? The movie is very good. So it has Pete's recommendation. Slightly harder one for you now. Next one coming up. Any ideas who this is? This is the Invisible Woman from the Fantastic Four. Thank you. It, it took me ages, but I think they captured her likeness very well there. So great superhero. Uh, next one up. Who's this? Any ideas who this is? This is Ethan Hunt from the Mission Impossible series. Next one up now. Ah, now we're getting from, moving from imaginary heroes to real heroes. Any ideas who this is, kids? This is Martin Luther King, so a civil rights activist in the United States who fought for people's equal rights and equality in the 1960s. So that's Martin Luther King. Next one up here. Any ideas who she is? Real life hero. This lady's name is Jackie Pullinger. And she has worked for many years out in Hong Kong with people from very disadvantaged backgrounds, many of them addicted to drugs, both in Hong Kong and China. She's still alive today and a massive hero of mine. And then finally, I bet you don't know who this guy is. This guy's name is Jason Oglesby. And in 2009, he was working on a construction site in the United States, in the North United States, by a river. And uh, there was a, a, a couple in a pleasure boat who were on this river near a massive weir, massive dam. And they got into trouble and the boat capsized. For 30 minutes, rescuers tried to reach them, were unable to. But Jason and his construction team came up with a plan and they rigged up their crane from the construction site and hovered it over the dam and lowered Jason into this cauldron of water. And you can see him there reaching out to grab this woman's arm. He picks her up the construction crew pick the crane up again, and she's delivered to safety. Amazing story. See, heroes there, both real and imagined. If you think of the imaginary heroes for a minute, well, what tends to characterize them is that they have superhuman powers or strength. They've got some special things about them. But if you think about the real-life heroes, what tends to characterize them is their willingness to sacrifice for other people. Their willingness to literally put their lives on the line on behalf of other people. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, how far would you go to help someone? What would you do in order to reach out to someone in need? Uh, what would you do to help your friends? What difficulty would you be willing to go through to help your family? Would you be willing to dangle from a crane to go to the aid of someone you don't really know? Some of you are very much up for that. But what would you be willing to do to help someone you've never even met? Or think again, what would you be willing to do to help somebody who's going to be incredibly cruel or unkind to you in return? Would you, under those circumstances, be willing to sacrifice for them? Well, this morning I want to introduce you to someone who's willing to do all of those things. His name is Bruce Olsen, and I've got a photo of him coming up on the screen here. You probably have never heard of him, but he's a hero of mine. He doesn't look like much of a hero, to be honest. But what makes him a hero of mine is his willingness to help a bunch of people he'd never 
even met. His is a story of jungle adventure, of danger, and to be honest, of tapeworms. I will give you some gruesome alerts as we go through. So I'm going to say gruesome alert, and you can put your fingers in your ears at that moment if you choose to, okay? Um, He was born in Minnesota in 1941. He was a very bright, very tall, blonde-haired young man, and he was always good with languages. He managed to teach himself Greek, Latin, and Sanskrit, so an ancient language, but to be honest, who hasn't? Uh, In his early teens, he started uh, asking big questions about what life is all about, and he very quickly realized that he knew about God, but he didn't actually know God, so he began exploring the Christian faith. Uh, He started going to a church that was five miles away from the home where he lived, and he went with a friend and began reading the Bible with him. But his parents really didn't, didn't approve. And his household was full of fighting and arguing, lots of tension. And as a result, he was filled with anxiety. So what he would do on a Sunday is he would walk five miles to this church and then go and spend much of the day there. And then he would walk the five miles home in the freezing cold conditions in winter. Very often, only to arrive home and discover that his dad had locked the front door and wouldn't let him in. He'd then have to walk a further two miles to a friend's house just to sleep the night. But Bruce still continued to go to church, and he was still curious by this bunch of people who seemed to have a life that he didn't have. And finally, one night, he decided to talk to God for himself, and he writes in his book, he says this, he says, this is what I prayed. Jesus, I've read about how everyone around you was changed. I want the peace and fulfillment that they have. I want to be delivered from all my anxiety and fears, he prays. And then he said this, I realized a peace coming into me. It wasn't something dead or passive. It was alive, and it was making me alive. I could feel that I was going to be able to like myself for the first time. I didn't ever want that peace to go away. So that night, he goes to sleep, and he wakes up in the morning, and he says, I realized suddenly that peace that I'd experienced the night before was still there, lodged in my heart, and his life had changed as a result forever. Bruce's plan had been to become a university professor and to then work in a university teaching languages. But through his teenage years, he began to become increasingly drawn to South America. He couldn't explain why. And in particular, the tribes who lived in the rainforest there. On the face of it, Bruce wasn't the ideal candidate to go on international missions. Uh, He was a a child with a very poor eyesight. He'd been sick a lot of his life. And he wasn't the strongest of children. He wasn't exactly the outdoors type either. His parents believed that he was part of a Boy Scouts troop. So every week they would drive to a community center and they would drop him off outside. But what would happen is he would walk in through the doors of the community center and then go past all the Boy Scouts doing their knots or whatever. And then go straight out the back of the community center and sit on the steps and read his books about ancient literature. He would then, two hours later, walk back through the community center for his dad to collect him. So his parents believed all his life he was a Boy Scout. He never really was. He just read lots of books. But he applied to a number of Christian organizations in the hope that he might be able to go to South America. But they all turned him down, except this deep sense of calling that wouldn't go away. He had a heart to follow God's call, whatever that looked like and whatever that meant. The Bible says that God looks not to the outward appearance, but to the heart says that God doesn't look at your uh, face, your features. He doesn't look at your body, your build. He doesn't look at your skills or your qualifications. He looks at whether or not you've got a heart to follow him. 
If you think of it a bit like this, think of your life a bit like a car, okay? Uh, for some people, they believe in God, but they want to keep God for emergencies when something goes horribly wrong. So they kind of keep God in the boot like you would a spare tire that you can dash to when everything goes wrong. Other people, well, they're interested in God, but they want him to advise them and guide them through life so they don't end up with difficulties. So they might have God in the passenger seat of their car to help navigate and direct them. But then there are some people who are willing to let God sit in the driving seat, to let him choose the direction and the pace of their lives. Bruce was a guy just like that. He had God firmly in the driving seat of his life, and he was willing to go wherever God took him. Eventually, he decided to obey God, not man, and decided to go without the support of these Christian organizations. And so, in 1961, he left on a flight to Venezuela. I've got a map of South America on the screen. His only contact was a missionary called Mr. Saunders, who he'd never met. And the plan was for Mr. Saunders to pick him up from the airport. He was 19 years old. He spoke no Spanish, the local languages, and only had $70, about 55 pounds, to his name in his pocket. That was it. Some of you teenagers are up for adventure. Some of your parents are not so keen on that idea. 55 pounds, that's all he had. So he lands in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela, and eagerly expects Mr. Saunders to be there to welcome him, except Mr. Saunders never turns up. He waits for him the whole day, and finally, by one in the morning, he decides that he's going to have to go somewhere else to try and find somewhere to sleep. Eventually, through an amazing set of circumstances, over about three or four weeks, he ends up at a university in Venezuela. He begins to learn Spanish. He studies tropical medicine, which will be useful out there. And he gets a job with a health authority and starts reaching Venezuelan students. So he's being faithful with God, where God has put him. But still, he had a yearning to get to the jungle. And he began to hear more and more about what was going on in the rainforest. Oil companies have been exploring the region and were looking to dig wells there to tap into the oil. But around 50 of their workers had been murdered by a fearsome tribe called the Molotov, often merely so that the natives could get hold of the tin hats that the oil workers used. They would murder them to get the tin hats so they could then use them as cooking pots. But also, the tribe was suffering because Western diseases were starting to invade their land, and many of the Molotov had died as a result of catching measles. Over time, Bruce increasingly gets a heart to reach out to this tribe. He manages to persuade some guides, and they take him on the many days' journey through the Andes Mountains to find this jungle tribe. As they make their way down one trail, his guides, who were with him, suddenly turn and run off into the undergrowth. Too late, Bruce senses some movement, and then suddenly he's aware of a searing pain in his leg. He looks down as he collapses to the floor and sees a five-foot-long arrow sticking out of his leg. He writes this, I looked down at my thigh. A long shaft was sticking out of it with a neat little punch hole where the arrow had gone in. The hole was bright red from blood, my blood, oozing out down my leg. I couldn't take my eyes off the arrow. It seemed unreal. Then I looked up, and my heart almost stopped. I was encircled by nine men with huge bows drawn taut. Nine little dots of arrowheads pointed right at me. I forgot about my leg in that moment. Gruesome warning. Uh, without taking their eyes off of me, they removed the arrows from their bows. One of the men walked over to me. 
I cowered. He reached down to my leg, put his foot on my leg, grasped the arrow, and yanked the arrowhead out. But for some reason, these Indians didn't kill him. They then marched him for three hours to their communal home. For two days, he was kept inside this large hut without any food or any water. By this stage, his leg has become horribly infected, and he's delirious with pain. He said this, I began to pray. I prayed as if I hadn't prayed for a long time. I spoke quietly to God. My eyes open. I'm watching out for slight, the slightly moving hammocks of the molotone as they swung, strung off the ground. I didn't want to disturb them. And then he said this. He said, God came and comforted me. He let me know that I was doing what he wanted. Psalm 55 says this, cast all your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. The next morning, a small boy came up to him with a big palm leaf folded up in his hands. Gruesome warning. He smiled and held out the leaf to me. Inside the leaf was a mess of squirming grubs, just like this one on the screen. He says each one was about the size of a hot dog. I didn't know what to do, so I shrugged my shoulders. And then the boy did this next. Uh, maybe I could help you get a bit of perspective. I don't have a palm leaf. Not many of those tend to grow in our garden. Um, but I do have a rhubarb leaf that I picked up here this morning, which is a similar kind of thing. Kids, you don't want to be, ever be eating a rhubarb leaf. But then he said this. That the boy did this. He, he picked up one of the grubs that was inside the palm leaf, about the size of a hot dog. Now, I don't have any grubs about the size of a hot dog, I'm afraid. But kids, what I do have is a hot dog. So the kid picked up one of these. Yeah, and Bruce didn't know what to do. So the young boy showed him what to do next. Do I need to show you with the hot dog what happened next? Yeah, some of you, no. Some of you, yes. Okay, we're going to go with yes, all right? So the boy did this. He bit the head off the grub. All right, yes. And then he spat it out like that. And then, Actually, that's disgusting. And then... <laughs> And then he proceeded to chew on the rest of the grub. He said the inside squirted out as he chewed on it. The boy then takes the palm leaf and hands it over to Bruce. Bruce has little option. That's the only food available to him. So he then devours all of these grubs and then later on revisits the grubs later on in ways that I won't describe. For four weeks, Bruce lives like this with a molotone, their prisoner. Then finally, there's the opportunity to escape. And he staggers out of the jungle, this time onto the Colombian side of the border. Except Bruce realized this wasn't the end of the story for him. He was filled with this deep and kind of inexplicable compassion for these people, even if they might kill him. So a few weeks later, he decides to go back. And he starts out by leaving gifts on the jungle trail for them that the molotone used. And over a period of years, he gradually gains the acceptance of the tribe and starts to live as part of their community. However, life was never easy for Bruce. Living in the jungle meant frequent sickness and that disease was a constant enemy. Last gruesome alert. Uh, one night he'd been sick uh, with amoebic dysentery and fever and he was delirious for many days. And he, he recounts one time when he was in this sort of dreamlike state, full of fever and really suffering, when he in his mind had a picture of a moth landing on the lips of his mouth. He kind of comes to 
out of the fever and realizes that there is something in his mouth, except that it's not a moth. And he puts his fingers into his mouth and he pulls out a foot and a half long tapeworm from inside. He'd been starving himself so much through sickness that the tapeworm had come up from his stomach in search of food. This is the kind of thing that Bruce had to contend with. I do hope you enjoy your lunch later. Um, but the plus side with all the suffering and the difficulty, don't have spaghetti. Um, the plus side, the plus side with all the suffering and sickness was it gave an opportunity for Bruce to try and help the monotones. One time, uh, the tribe were suffering really badly with eye infections that were spreading around the whole tribe. And the local medicine woman was unable to help people through her chanting and her potions. But Bruce had some antibiotic medicines uh, with him, which he knew would help the people. The easy thing to do would have then been to have started handing out the medicines that he had to all the people. Then he would have rose in their standing and he would have become something of a hero to the tribe. But Bruce didn't do that. What he decided to do is he decided to go and talk to the medicine woman. And he said to her, I've got this special potion, i.e. medicine, that will help your people. Why don't you take this and try it and see if it works? So she then administered, she gave out the medicine to all the sick people and the tribe began to recover. You see, Bruce wasn't interested in becoming their hero. Bruce was there in order to help those people. He wasn't wanting just to rise in standing with them. He was wanting to genuinely love them. And gradually, through situations like that, over the years, many people began to trust him and let him into their lives. He was able to help them with healthcare. He brought in medicines. He was able to help them with farming techniques that made the land more sustainable. He was able to help them liaise with the government so that their land became protected and they were safe from other settlers. But one event, one event served as the catalyst, as the starter for change for so many things in the Molotone tribe. He'd always wondered why the warriors had never killed him when they first come across him, like they had every single other person they'd encountered from the West. Bruce knew that they had a tribal legend, and the tribal legend was that they believed that at one time they as a tribe used to walk the jungle trails with God. They used to walk on God's paths, but that someone had come and deceived them, and that now they'd left God's trail to walk on their own. In the dense jungle, they'd lost sight of God, and they now believe that God lived in distant lands on his own trails beyond the horizon. The men started talking about this one time when Bruce was walking through the jungle with his friends, and they came across another man who was visibly upset because a friend of his had died, and his friend had died far away from home so that he couldn't be near to God. And Bruce asked him what was going on, and they, they recounted another part of the legend that Bruce hadn't heard. And the story was that whilst they'd lost God's trails, that one day, according to their ancient legend, a man with yellow hair would come and he would speak to them out of the leaves of a banana stalk. Bruce said, what do you mean about the leaves of a banana stalk? So one of the guys grabbed a machete and he said, let me show you what I mean. He walks over to the banana tree and he chops off a slice of the banana tree and throws it on the ground at their feet. As he throws it on the ground, it splits open and the individual leaves of the banana leaf, the banana stalk, start to fall open just like the leaves of a book. Bruce reaches into his bag and he says, do you mean a banana stalk like this one? And he shows them his Bible, which folds over like the leaves of the banana leaf. All of a sudden, it's like the eyes of the molotone are opened and they rush to him saying, how can we know God 
through this banana stalk. One of them even rips pages out from the book and begins stuffing it into his mouth. Suddenly, they were desperate to know about the God that Bruce followed. Why hadn't the Indians first killed Bruce when they came across him? It was because of this ancient prophecy which said a man with yellow hair or Scandinavian blonde, if you prefer, would carry a banana stalk into the jungle and point them to who God is. God had planned this all along. You know, if you decide to follow God and have him in the driving seat of your life, then it won't always be predictable, it won't always be safe, it won't always be easy, but you will discover many coincidences along the way that God has a plan for your life. He's discovered that the very tribe he feels called to have been expecting him to arrive for generations. The Bible says that God has a plan for your life if you'll follow him. From that point on, God does an amazing work through the whole tribe, which I won't have time to tell you about. But Bruce explains how they can know God in ways that they will understand. He says that to follow God means to say sorry for not walking on God's trail, and that Jesus has made a way for us to find our way back to God's path, and that trusting him is like tying your hammock to the rafters of his hut, trusting that he'll support you. Bruce was with the tribe for five years, learning the language, treating the sick, loving the people before the banana leaf incident. The point is, these people weren't his pet project. They were his friends. He wasn't there to impose Western culture on them. He was there to bring the love of God to them in a way that fitted with who they were as a people. And since then, as the story comes to a close, God has done amazing things through that tribe. They made peace with their bitter enemies, the Yukos, and now 18 tribes in the jungle act together and help each other. There are now more than 70 health centers right across that part of Venezuela and Colombia, and 42 agricultural centers to help them as a people. There are native Indian lawyers, nurses, doctors, Bible teachers, translators, and engineers. In 1999, when an earthquake struck the region, the Molotone sent four doctors and 20 nurses to go and help. Bruce has argued the case for the native Indians in the United Nations, and now they've got 320 square miles of land that they can call their own home. To this day, in his 60s, Bruce lives still with the Molotone. He has his home with them. And it struck me as I read it that this is how the Apostle Paul says he reached out to a people group that he came across in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. And he writes this, how he was with them. He says, we weren't aloof with you. We took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending. We loved you dearly. Not content just to pass on the message. We wanted to give you our hearts. And we did. At the end of the day, how we define wealth will define us. And Paul describes people, not things, as true riches. Both Paul and Bruce realize that it's people that matter most. And they're willing to invest their lives, sacrifice their lives for the benefit of others. All these years later, Bruce now goes hunting in the jungle with his close friend called Bisandora. Who's he? He's the man who nearly 50 years ago fired an arrow into the thigh of a tall, skinny Scandinavian guy he came across in the jungle. God can do amazing things through people who are willing to let him sit in the driving seat.